0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, I want to tell you a story. I was um, in my living room. My dad was in town, and in front of my dad and I were were six big uh, cardboard boxes. And we were going through all these boxes. They had somehow gotten shipped to my house literally about seven years ago, and my job was to give them to my dad and it only took me seven years. So, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, so my dad was in town last week, and I was like, Dad, I need to give you the boxes. They've, they've been in my basement too long. I've moved to a different house and brought them with. We need to move these boxes. So um, in the boxes was a bunch of my uh, grandma and grandpa's uh, old things, mostly my grandpa's things. You, you might remember my grandpa passed away in February. Uh, I was just gone a couple weekends ago to go to his funeral service up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And so it was actually, it was actually pretty neat to get to go through all these things with my dad this soon after we had just uh, celebrated his life at his memorial. You know, and you might, you might understand how this works. Many people have been through this type of thing before. A lot of the stuff in the boxes was junk. I mean, there were, there were reams of financial statements. My grandfather was a very organized man, and it's all online now, Grandpa, so I love you, but, you know, we're going to toss that. Um, that's, that's, there were um, handwritten letters that my grandpa had sent to my grandma when he was in West Virginia and she was in Minneapolis, including when he proposed to her by writing Esther, would you like to get married? Why don't you move out to West Virginia and we'll get married via letter? <laughs> Bold move, Grandpa. She said yes. And so, you know, we threw those letters out too. Um, just <laughs> kidding. We obviously <laughs> didn't throw the letters out. Uh, but there was one folder. It was a thin little folder that I found and I just, I was, I was captivated by the content in it. It was four Papers my grandpa had published when he was working for the United States Rubber Company, which was a manufacturer of synthetic rubber. And that company was working for the United States military. And my grandpa worked for U.S. rubber from 1940 until 1946 during World War II. And in these four papers was basically the, the compilation of all of the work my grandpa had done on improving the efficiency and quality of producing synthetic rubber during World War II. Now, some of you might be going, neat, Carl, like, what, what, what is that significant? That's a great question. So around 19, a little, little history. Anybody here ready for a little history? A little World War II, okay, World War II history. Around 1942, the... Axis powers had control of pretty much all of Asia, and Asia was where pretty much all natural rubber was available. So the United States had no natural rubber available, and if you're going to be in a world war or in any war, um, you need vehicles or machinery of all sorts, and all of those need Rubber. They need tires in order to drive. They need rubber in all of the gaskets and all the parts that go into making engines and other machines of all sorts. So it became of critical strategic importance for the U.S. to increase the quality and the quantity of their rubber supply. Now, at this point, we actually knew how to make synthetic rubber. We, we've, in 1942, you know, we've known for a while how to make synthetic rubber, but we can't make it very fast, and we can't make it very good. So my grandpa works um, at this plant, and his job is to make more of it and make it better. Um, here's, here's one of the uh, papers, and here's I just want to give you the title of one of the papers. Solids conversion from controlled weathering of reactor latex. <laughs> Doesn't it just make you want to like, oh, I, I just need to read more about this. And let me tell you, I did. I read every page of all four of the papers I texted some of my friends who are chemists, and I texted some of my friends who are engineers, and we all said, that's really neat. I don't know if we really understand what's going on, but there were lots of wonderful words. I've never read anything with the word viscosity used so often as I did in these papers. Here's a couple other um, just images, you know, typed out on a typewriter, you can't really see it, but my grandpa's named by R.A. Richard Alvin Helvig uh, and one of his colleagues. So my grandpa was a chemical engineer during World War II, I mean his whole life, but and during World War II. And because the U.S. military had a clear and critical mission, that it was trying to accomplish during World War II. Because the United States had a mission, my grandpa had a pretty clear mission. The US was at war, and it, it was a war that had high stakes and high consequences. It was a war of really unestimably great importance. And because of the significance and importance of that mission, that gave clarity, significance, important to the specific work my grandpa was doing. We're talking today about the last phrase of our mission statement, which says, "In god's mission to our broken world, let me ask you a question: Have you ever had a mission if if you've served in the military, then this is a familiar term. You know what it is to, to, for there to be a broad mission and for you to have a, a clear role in that mission um, maybe if, if you're Place of employment, you know, some some businesses, some organizations use the term mission to talk about the the broad objectives they're trying to accomplish that lend clarity to the specific actions we need to do. Um, some people, I, I have some friends, and in their families, their families have a family mission statement. Um, so maybe this is a familiar word to you, though. For some of us, if we haven't served in the military, if we if we if our company doesn't have a mission statement, if we don't use it, then You know, maybe mission is a strange word. Maybe it's like, do I have a mission? Do we have a mission? Like, what, what, you know, I thought that that was just something that Tom Cruise had. I, I thought that was the only place mission mattered. So here's what I want to talk about this morning. What is our mission? And what does it mean that we are trying to be part of God's mission? Because here's what we know. If we are clear on what the mission is, it makes it a lot more clear what our mission is going to be. So here's here's the church mission statement. Centennial Covenant Church exists to glorify glorify God by following Jesus. Like we said on the first Sunday, we are Jesus-following people. Whatever we see Jesus doing, wherever we see Jesus going, however we see Jesus working, that's where we're going to go. On a shared journey. When we follow Jesus, we do it together. We live in a world that tries to tell us that if we just get the right tips and tricks and techniques, we can do anything we need on our own. But on God's mission, we're designed not to go on our own, but to do it together. This mission of following Jesus is a journey of transformation. God's not going to leave us the way we are. He's going to change us into the person he designed us to be. And this journey following Jesus A journey of transformation is a journey specifically in his mission, God's mission, to our broken world. Um, The the main question we're going to ask is, and so what is God's mission? The degree to which we know and understand God's mission is the degree to which we're going to know and understand our role in that mission. And here's the first thing that I just want to highlight about this all. When we're talking about God's mission, what we're not saying is we're not trying to ask God to bless our mission. Oftentimes, isn't this the way we work in life? I mean, we kind of do it in all sorts of ways. We're like, well, okay, here's what I want to do. And since this is what I want to do, God, I kind of want you to bless me and and kind of be with me in what I want to do. We don't ask God to bless us in our mission. Rather, we want to join God in God's mission. The thing that God is trying to do gets the priority. God is the one with the mission. So, what I'm going to spend the next few minutes doing is something that takes a lot more than just a few minutes to do, but I'm going to try to do it in a few minutes. I want to give four things from Scripture that I think are central, really unden- like critical to understanding, to answering this question what is God's mission? We're going to do it starting with a central text that I'm going to suggest uh, might be, it's at least a great candidate to be, the most clear, concise, one statement, uh, you know, one sentence statement of what God's mission is. But from that, I'm going to unpack it by looking at a bunch of different scriptures together this morning. And here's just what I ask As we talk through a bunch of scriptures, can we together try and get in our heads and in our hearts a clearer and clearer and clearer picture? of what God's mission is so that we can know with greater clarity what our role might be in his mission. So um, the, first, uh, the first and I think central text uh, and really just one statement from that text. End of Jesus' life, he's with the disciples. He's a, he's, this is post-resurrection. Jesus has died, he has come back to life. He's gathered his disciples for one last time and he gives them their mission. mission. Here's what he says to all of his disciples. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just before Jesus said this, in case there was any confusion or fuzziness about whether Jesus had the authority to, to give this type of clear instruction, Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore, and in this passage, there's one verb that is an imperative verb. I asked my 11-year-old and my 10-year-old last night, what does an imperative mean? And they said, it's, it's a command or an instruction. I said, yes, good job. Uh, the imperative verb is make disciples, So I think the mission of God can maybe be summarized in one of the shortest ways possible. What is our mission? The mission is to make disciples of all nations. Okay, what does it mean to make disciples? So we're going to look at a few different places to just sort of add some expansion, some clarity, some thoughts around what does it mean to make disciples? First, another one of the last words of Jesus, this is recorded in the book of Acts, the first chapter of the book of Acts. Again, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So first of all, what does it mean to be disciples? It means we are people who witness to Jesus. Our lives point to, they highlight, they underline, they they emphasize, they show the way, they shine a light on Jesus. What does it mean to make disciples? It means to make people, to help people be formed into the kind of people who point towards Jesus. And when Jesus says into all nations, what does he mean? There's this really interesting set of of geographic terms in this Acts passage, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Jerusalem is where they're standing right now. Like when Jesus is talking to them, they are in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria are kind of like the neighbors to Jerusalem. And then the ends of the earth are even farther out. Jesus gives us a picture of what I would call sort of the ripple effect. You throw a rock into the water and the ripple starts very close to home. It starts right where the rock lands, but the ripple always expands from there. So what does it mean to make disciples of all nations? It means that we always start, the mission starts, exactly where you are. No matter where you are in life, no matter uh, how young or old you are in following Christ, no matter whether you uh, understand what God designed you for and what gifts and abilities you have, or whether this is brand new thought to you, God's mission as it relates to your life always starts exactly where you are. And the mission is always expanding. The mission always starts exactly where you are, but God always wants to take you farther out as he seeks to make disciples of all nations. So I said four things. The first one, this is, okay, the first one's actually two, you know, whatever, one, A and B. Uh, what does it mean to join God in God's mission? It means to start where you're at and be willing to see God expand your work from There. Second thing I want to talk about, what what does God mean when he says make disciples? Often, um, whenever you're reading a story and God in his scripture is telling us the story of his relationship with all creation, if ever you're in the middle of the story and Jesus shows up kind of in the middle of the story, these teachings happen kind of in the middle of the story, if you really want to understand properly what happens in the middle of the story, you need to know where the story began and you need to eventually know Where the story ends. It's like when you walk in late to the movie and you missed the opening sequence. And so for the whole rest of the movie, you're like, hold on, why is this guy doing that? And the person next to you is like, shh, I'm trying to watch the movie. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's this person? I haven't met them before. And they're like, shh. right, so instead of having to shh one another right now, let's talk about the beginning and the end of the story of Scripture. I'm I'm gonna run through again a bunch of scriptures right here, but I think you're gonna see a pretty beautiful theme. So first of all, let's look at the beginning. Um, In the beginning, we read a scripture that describes how God created humanity, and this is what it says. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God expands on this by telling us a little bit about what was it like to be a human, Created in the image of God at the beginning. Well, we get a few pictures of that. We find out the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And then we find out the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then we get this great picture of what it was like for God to be there with the man and the woman. It says, the man... And his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When I read Genesis 1 through 3, and if you haven't read it for a while, go read it again. We can just never read Genesis 1 through 3 enough. Uh, our former lead pastor, Steve Tulson used to say all the time, he was tempted, if, if people were to only get one part of Scripture that he could give them to understand who God is, he was tempted to say Genesis 1 through 3. It's tricky because doesn't talk about Jesus in Genesis 1 through 3, so, you know, but uh, the point being, we get this picture at the beginning of Scripture of humanity the way it was supposed to be. And the way it was supposed to be was humanity, oh man, I forgot about the tree of life. Okay, uh, we'll get there. Okay. Uh, Humanity was living life in a whole way. They were relationally whole with one another. There was no shame. They were Personally, uh, whole in their job, the vocation. It says that the man worked the ground, and that was given, that was said as like it was a gift. God put us on earth to enjoy work, not to feel the burden of it. They were in a whole relationship with God. God walked in the garden in the cool of day, right? And He walked with me, and He talk, right? Um, it's a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of life as it's supposed to be. And sure enough, there's an image. At the center of this whole garden story, there's two trees in the middle of the garden, and one of the trees is the tree of life. This is where I point, and dramatically, the tree of life shows up on a slide, and you're all like, all right, the tree of life. But I did it early. Um, And sure enough, when we see this picture of wholeness at the beginning of the story, we actually find that that's exactly... Where the story ends as well, let's jump now to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, where if Genesis tells us, this is how the story begins, this is how it was supposed to be in the beginning, then Revelation shows us, oh, this is a picture of where God is bringing things because we know, maybe you don't know, I think you know, um, if we look around at the world right now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't personally see relational wholeness and vocational wholeness, and I don't see just this loving, beautiful relationship between God and all of his people. Rather, what I see is a whole lot of brokenness, a whole lot of the things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So where's God bringing things in the end? Um, There's this image of God sort of declaring at the end of time, finally earth will be the way it's supposed to be. And that image is captured, if in the beginning it was a garden, the the image at the end is captured in a city. It's kind of like if a garden can take care of two people, a city is, is is a garden that can take care of multitudes of people. And we get some descriptions about what it's like to live in this new city. Here's the first one from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And what's this relationship like between God and humanities and humans and one another? Uh, We find out a little later. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Then we get another beautiful image. What are the streets of this city like? The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And then sure enough, yet another image that echoes the Genesis story. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down the middle of the great street of the city. Uh, Next slide. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. In the beginning, Adam worked the ground, and it was like a gift. In the end, gold the thing that wars are fought over in our world. Gold becomes the pavement because people don't need to work and fight for gold anymore. In the beginning, humans were in pure relationship with one another, whole and shame-free. In our world, relationships are so often broken. But in the end, the curse will be removed. In the beginning, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. In the end, God will live in the same city that we live in. So what does it mean to make disciples? Here's the image we get from the beginning and the end of the story. Making disciples means helping all people to become whole. It means, it means fully alive living. So often, we talked about this many times in our Abundant Life series, so often the life that we experience here is a shallow life. Uh, truncated, half-hearted version of living. God's vision is for us to be fully alive. What does it mean to make disciples? It means to help people find spiritual, relational, physical, economic wholeness. God's desire in making disciples of all nations is for all people to be whole in every area of life. So what's God's mission? First, It's something that starts exactly where you're at and expands from there. Second, the mission is holistic. So often we like to cut down, to find the lowest common denominator, to to describe what God is doing as simply as long as you pray the prayer and sins are forgiven, then we can just be good from there. And that is wonderful and critical, but the mission is holistic. It includes every area of our life. Third thing I want to say about God's mission in the mission that he has, that we're trying to join him is uh, it comes from one of the most central teachings Jesus gave during his life and ministry. Uh, You can read about it in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Here's what Jesus says. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And it turns out so many other biblical authors echoed this theme theme in many different ways. Throughout the New Testament, we see people referencing, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, referencing this central teaching of Jesus, this love command of Jesus. As I have loved you, you must One of those words that we might like it if we could just sort of erase it out. Like, like, Jesus, how about, like, it'd be a really good idea for you to consider loving one another as I have loved you. Or, Jesus, how about, like, we can just edit it a little bit. You may love one another as I have loved you. But no, it's a command. You must. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, picked up on this when he was writing to the church in Ephesus he said it this way, I think, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Well, what is the calling you have received? It's pretty clear. What Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Paul adds an explanation of that when he says, what does that look like? It looks like we keep the unity. And this isn't something new to God's people. Uh, The psalmist, Psalm 133 verse 1 said, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. What does it mean to make disciples? It means to put The double love command of Jesus, as I have loved you, you must love one another, to put that central in our lives, which means that for God to accomplish his mission, his mission, apparently, according to him, this isn't according to me, this isn't according to anybody else, apparently, according to God, God's mission demands our unity. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally am hearing far too many stories about churches that are dividing, about Christians that are becoming famous for fighting one another, that are becoming headlines and newspapers about how divided and discordant we are as a church. And apparently, apparently, according to God, God's mission demands yes. our unity. Now, does this mean that, therefore, we're going to agree on everything and get along all the time. By unity, do I mean there's, there's no differences, there's no different points of view, there's no back and forth, no arguing, no you know, difficult conversations? No, I don't mean that. And, and especially because um, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, the church fights about stuff all the time. So I don't mean that there's no hard conversations, there's no different points of view, there's no challenging, uh, wrestling through, what does it mean to be a church together? We do that in here. What I do mean is the way we go about negotiating our differences must maintain our unity. We have a phrase that we've used around here a lot. We say here, in the co- here at Centennial and here in the Covenant, we like to agree to disagree agreeably. Maybe it's cheesy. I don't know. But it's been stuck in my mind for a long time. But here's the problem. I think far too often the easier route that I know I will take is let's just agree to pretend like we agree. Can we just agree to sort of lift up the rug and then drop it? And then if we just pretend like we don't disagree, that might be easier. We don't have to do the hard work of agreeing to disagree agreeably. But I can also tell you this, because I'm I'm the first to admit it. I love... To avoid hard conversations, I just love it. But when I stop avoiding it and I actually lean in and say, "Hey, you're a good friend of mine. You know, I know that we have a difference of point of view on this topic. You know, pick your topic: political issues, COVID issues, theology issues, worship issues. One time, I don't know if you remember this. This is off script. One time, we put we put the chairs in this room in a big circle." I don't know if you remember that some people loved it and some people oh my goodness that was like you're pushing me too far I was like oh wow okay the arrangement of the chairs in the worship center like that's whew. when I <laughs> there we go um when I do the work and lean into that hard conversation even if at the end I haven't like resolved the question It is so much better. The the contentment that I get in my heart, not because we magically have resolved all the problems, but because I know I leaned into the unity of the body of Christ, which Christ commanded me of, I am always grateful when that's the path that I followed. Um, The mission, what's the next slide? Next slide, slides are frozen. Keep praying for our technology. It's just not doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, the mission starts where you are, and it's ever expanding. The mission is holistic, and the mission demands our unity. Um, One more thing, I brought my notes, because just, seriously, actually, be praying for our computer system in here, because we have, like, an unbelievable tech team, like, seriously, unbelievable tech team uh, doing unbelievable work, and the computer refuses to obey. I'm not, I'm not frustrated by it at all. (laughs) I am completely at peace with myself and with God and with others. It is a whole in here. Um, Why are you laughing? It's too close to home. Um, Mission starts where you are. It's ever-expanding. The mission is holistic. The mission demands our unity. One more. Uh, I'll just read. uh, Oh, yeah, we got it. Look at that. It's back. Um, Paul, again, talking to the church, talking about what does it look like to be, to join God in God's mission. Paul says to the church in Corinth, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Good. If we're going to join God in God's mission, then we can know, beyond a doubt, that the gifts you have, the passions you have, the abilities you have, because God gave them to you, you are essential. Not optional, not tangential, not sort of like, oh, it'd be nice if you join or not, but because God gave you the gifts you have, because God made you the person you are, because... Whoever you are and however you've been put together, that is an expression of God's Spirit. That is an expression of the most powerful force in existence. You are an expression of God, and you and we are essential to God's mission. For some reason, God chose to accomplish His mission with our participation being critical, which means, as always, we have to ask ourselves... What's your move going to be? Um, So think about this. As a church, here's our commitment. Our commitment is not to say, God, here's what we're doing, please bless it. But our commitment is to say, God, you have a mission, you're up to something. The story of Scripture, and we can just go to so much more, but the story of Scripture says, God is up to something in this world. He has a mission, he has a purpose, and our desire is to join him in what he is doing. And he's given us, every one of us, critical roles to play. So uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I'd love for you to just take some time. These are the sorts of things, if you want to write them down, um, they came to you in the All Church email on Friday. Uh, You can get them there. Um, I would love for us to legitimately reflect a little bit on these questions. And then I'm going to wrap it up by finishing um, the story of my grandpa working as a chemical engineer during the war. A few questions. First, uh, as we consider joining God in God's mission, um, would you evaluate your heart by asking, am I interested in joining God in God's mission? Like, am I really? You know, that little word really is so good in questions. <laughs> am, I, am I really interested in joining God in what God is doing? Or am I actually just more interested in asking God to bless me in my mission? It's a hard question. There's a lot to parse out in our hearts in order to answer it honestly and authentically, but we have to start with, what are my desires? Really. Evaluate your heart. Second, uh, evaluate your practice. Uh, Am I committed to the whole gospel or a partial gospel? If making disciples of all nations is really a holistic activity, It involves our physical, our spiritual, our emotional, our psychological, our holistic health. Then does your faith practice reflect a God who wants to make you whole? Or, like I shared a a number of weeks ago, is my faith practice far too truncated? My, My prayer life was really just something I did exclusively on my own, as opposed to sharing it with people. Am I committed to the whole Gospel, or does my faith practice suggest maybe I'm living just a partial one? Work for unity. A little visual thing to make it really just stick out in your mind. Work for unity. Am I creating division? Or am I creating unity? If you look at the way, and, and just just to pause here, uh, and I'm really grateful because I said, I see in the news, I hear stories of friends, I, I have pastor friends, I, I see churches getting split apart, I'm grateful that this church is a church of great unity. I don't see evidence of like, whoo, the cracks are forming and we're about to fall apart, but at the same time, just because I don't see it, just because I'm not super scared about it, doesn't mean we're not at risk, right? Just because we're doing a good job right now and there's health and connection here doesn't mean the brokenness of our world could not come in any instant and threaten to tear us apart. So we have to keep asking ourselves, am I working in a way that builds unity or builds division? How can I build unity? Last one. Know and use your gifts, you might ask yourself, am I using every gift God has given me? You can do the next slide. And so here's the story. My grandpa um, read these papers. Um, super just fun to see uh, the work he did and the culmination of that work. Um, I read, a, there was another paper. It was It was a newsletter <laughs> called the Synthetic Rubber Times. <laughs> woohoo! Yeah! Man! And in the newspaper, it was distributed, there were uh, apparently around 50 rubber manufacturers all in West Virginia along the same stretch of the river they were on. Um, it was the center of synthetic rubber production worldwide. And this newsletter got distributed around all of them. In the letter, it talked about how improving America's synthetic rubber production was critical. It was just mission critical to the war effort. You know, so you read the newsletter, and I, and I get to read these papers, and I'm like, wow. Uh, a, I actually didn't know a lot of this story for much of my life. My grandpa didn't talk about it much um, for much of his life until later on. Uh, so it's just cool to get more details of, of what I just sort of learned. But then there's a second thing um, that I'll add to the story. C, I just told you one version of my grandpa's story, but here's the version my grandpa first told and actually told for a long time. The version he told was, yeah, um, during the war, my two brothers enlisted and went and served on the front line. But I didn't serve in the war. I I don't think I really understood the significance until probably pretty recently that my grandpa told himself that he had made no effort. He had made no contribution. His brothers did. They were on the front lines. They came back. And he told himself that he hadn't. It wasn't until literally kind of getting towards the end of his life that he finally would open up to my dad and my aunt and talk a little more. and, And I think, I hope we were able to convince him that this story he'd been telling himself was wrong and that he had, in fact, made a great contribution. Uh, But isn't that... I think about the version of the story my grandpa told, and isn't that um, something we do often? We look at our gifts. We look at our days and our weeks and our months. We look at the things we're passionate about and excited about and, and, and the abilities we have, and we look around and... And I don't know, but I think far too often uh, we discount our gifts. We look at the contribution we have to make. And I will admit that far too often what I say is what I have to give isn't enough. Oh, that person over there. Oh, if only I had their gifts. If only I could make their contribution. If only... Too often we discount our gifts. We say they're not enough. We wish there were something else, instead of saying, this is who God made me to be. Who you are is exactly who God made you to be. The gifts you have, the passions you have, the ability you have are critical to helping God accomplish God's mission in this broken world. Taking your whole life seriously, becoming a whole and healthy person is critical to the mission. Working for the unity of the church. Even if the divisiveness we see in our world feels bigger than it's worth even trying, whatever little effort we make is critical to the mission of the church. Knowing and using every gift you have, God has designed it so that your work, your contribution, is essential. Scripture tells us, you, on God's mission, your participation is critical as the worship team comes back up, would you pray with me? God, I just praise you that you have chosen to make Centennial Covenant Church part of your mission to this broken world. I praise you that uh, because of your presence in this fellowship, we've seen new communities of believers uh, launched around this state and around the world. We've been part of church planting in years past. Uh, I praise you that because of the gifts you've given people at Centennial Covenant, you've started new ministries, you've, you've built your kingdom, you've expanded it both here and abroad. I praise you that because of your presence in this place, uh, mission partners have been sent around the world, supported and encouraged and funded and kept close in relationship. I praise you, God, that you have been at work and that you are work in Centennial Covenant Church. Not because, not because we in and of ourselves have got what it takes, but because you tell us you, God, you have chosen to be at work in our lives and to be at work through our lives. God, I thank you for the relationships, the communities of trust and transparency where transformation, where change, where hope has been born and raised. I thank you for the ways that we both struggle through challenge and hardship and also celebrate through Great joy and celebration together. God, as we, uh, especially after this worship gathering at our congregational meeting, as we look at the future of Centennial Covenant Church, as we look at where you're leading us, as how we might join you in your mission, I would pray that, God, you would show us how we can start right where we're at. That you can show us how you want to expand our role in the kingdom. God, I pray that you would give us a passion for whole life health, the way you designed us to be. God, I pray that you would show us how to work for your unity and your church. And God, I pray for any of us and every of us, if we even in the smallest way struggle with self-doubt, with this lie that says, I'm not enough, would you dispel that and instead make it clear That every one of us has been designed by you, gifted and empowered by you to play a critical and essential role in your mission to our world. Amen.